0: And don't tell me that I'm a weirdo because I'm upset about this. I'm just sick of dishonorable trash. Supreme Cobra Commander. you failures. You think I'd sell my family out like you, dirtbag? I went right after the Bundy Ranch thing, you knew they'd pull something. I said they're going to pull a false flag, probably shooting cops. And I know I said that probably... Since Bundy Ranch thing 100 times in the last couple of years, 300, 400, 500 times, you've all heard it at nauseum. I'm sure you're sick of hearing it. We'll find the clips. We found some of them, but not the specific ones. Because if I was the globalist who are willing to stage all these other false flags, I just cannot handle it. And I just know full well what these scum are going to pull. I mean, do people at the Justice Department really want to be involved in more false flags? You really like blowing up daycare centers and blaming it on the states? They were about to have a states' rights movement to get out of the U.N. in globalism in 1994-95. Oklahoma was leading a state coalition of 27 states to do it. And so they blew up the federal building and blamed it on the patriots. And I'm telling you, that's the kind of crap they're going to pull. And what does even Steven Seagal say? It's up on Infowars.com. I believe in the Second Amendment, and I believe a lot of these mass murders going on, that a lot of these are engineered. Won't you fight for your life? Won't you recognize who these scum are? I'm going to say it real slow for you. They were testing different political systems. These are scientists that we fight. They tested Bolshevik communism in 1917 in Russia. It killed 50 million people, conservatively. They put Mao in in 49. That's declassified. The CIA put Mao in that killed 84 million people. They then, as a counter to it, created Nazi fascism as a scientific test to see what that would do. Do you understand that the United States and England gave birth to communism and Nazism? So while you're talking about those as the old evils, those little dragons, look at mama. If you want to know what we're facing, mama kills you in the water and the vaccines. Mama kills you with brainwashing. Mama kills you with liberalism. Mama kills you with lots of trendies wearing non-threatening clothing. It's camouflage, not not the actual trendy. That's a brainwashed, brain damaged idiot. But they're master controllers know exactly what they're doing these are technicians they get orders we're completely overrun people but if you wake up to the criminals it's game over but i'm here to tell you you know we get people on saying alex you don't need to get upset you don't need to yell and scream you know we need to just calmly tell the public we have calmly told the public they're in a trance and i'm here shaking people in their trance going wake up wake up snap out of it snap out out of it you have been under cult brainwashing come out of it, it doesn't. have you heard the story of- and written on the wall and everyone blood. has
1: the different stories of oh this happened to my brother this is telling you stories of the old country. there was this girl it was back when we were a little kid to find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in american A
2: war. story behind the story because it's just a story
1: Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake.
2: And I'm Sam.
1: And we're here to tell you a story.
2: Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans.
1: Welcome back, sheeple.
2: Wake up, sheeple.
1: Have you been woke since the last episode? Woke? Yeah, it's a thing the kids are saying.
2: No, it's not. Yes, it is. It's
1: just not reference to this.
2: Oh, well, I have been completely saturated in the dark side of the internet for the last few days, and I don't know anything anymore. So this is going to be fine.
1: Well, before we get into that, we do want to thank everybody that's come back, of course. I mean, you are a sheeple. You have to follow.
2: But you are beautiful. Oh, no. (laughs) You're the fluffiest, prettiest sheep of all the sheeps.
1: You should also join the flock on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at Just A Story Pod, where we post lots of fun stuff about this week's topic at hand. Um, It's also a great place to reach out to us.
2: That's right. And if you want to go flock yourself even more, you can head on over to the Just A Story podcast website and find links to our Patreon, where you can become a sustaining sheeple and give money to your gracious overlords. Or you can go to the merch shop and proudly brand yourself as one of our mindless followers. Oh my God, my head is going to explode.
1: So if you'd like to call in on the hotline and tell us your favorite conspiracy theory slash urban legend.
2: You can do that by dialing 512-222-3375.
1: Please do that from your satellite phone in your bunker.
2: That's right, you guessed it, folks. We're almost there. We're almost to the point where we can tell you why we're acting this way. So,
1: today when I went to check the mail, there was an unmarked white Escalade parked there. And when I
2: walked out, it turned on and drove away. I know who was in that Escalade. Who? It was Alex Jones. Like, I'm not even kidding. Like, as soon as you told me that, I was like, oh my god, he heard me. He heard my meltdown yesterday.
1: Right. Alex Jones. He actually kind of is our neighbor. Kind of. He does live in Austin. So, Alex Jones is the man you heard ranting at the top of the episode. And Alex Jones, if you do not know, has been called one of the most prolific conspiracy theorists in America today, the most paranoid man in America by Rolling Stones, and the king of conspiracy by CNN. Alex Jones has several venues where he likes to spout his information. Yep. And that includes the Alex Jones show, which is a radio show that has about 2 million weekly listeners. It's nationally syndicated on over 60 radio stations. He also has two conspiracy-themed websites, the main one being InfoWars, which is the 500th most popular site in the United States.
2: And those numbers are like from 2013, so there's no telling Oh, it's out. Oh, yeah. It's up. There's no telling.
1: And he also has a site called prisonplanet.com. And he claims that he has 11.5 million unique hits per month.
2: So basically, like, almost our numbers. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's funny. Yeah, we're no info wars.
1: We aren't. <laughs> he also has a line of products, videos, documentaries, books, and the legends, the ideas, the digital folklore we're talking about today, and very much in reference to... The first part of this series, in our False Flags episode, is the things that he claims are going on, his conspiracies. His main talking points include things like the New World Otter.
2: Those are the people angling for a single world government and trying to take over the planet.
1: Or bring on the Antichrist.
2: Uh, same, same. Depends on who you ask. What um, day you ask him, yeah. I think, actually.
1: No, that's true. Enforced eugenics.
2: That's terrifying. Oh, right, because Bill Gates is actually a eugenics master. Yes.
1: Um, Secret internment camps.
2: Secret internment camps.
1: Militarized police and behind-the-scene control by a global corporate cabal, including all these false flag operations that he so frequently cites.
2: So Goldman Sachs is one of his, like, they are definitely part of the cabal, I've seen. I don't know who is in the secret internment camps. Patriots.
1: Real Patriots.
2: How did they get them? They all have guns and money. They
1: took their guns off. <laughs> oh,
2: no, they didn't, liars. Did they have bare arms? They had bare arms. So, Patriots in internment camps, Goldman Sachs, Cabal, Bill Gates is a eugenicist, there's fluoride in the water supply, oh, and yeah, it's the, killing us.
1: It's controlling us. So, conspiracy theories as we talked about in the past episode, are a part of the fabric of this nation.
2: They really are. And so Jones branding as a patriot, not that crazy. He's just being American as he can possibly be without his head exploding. And if you watch him sometimes, it looks like it's about to.
1: It might happen. So the conspiracy theorists of greatest concern to him and also to officials would be those voicing suspicion that political elites have fomented war, rigged elections, assassinated rivals, or in other ways subverted democratic governance. So a conspiracy theory in this sense is an allegation that an event affecting national political priorities was the result of a secret plot by political insiders who have used their power and influence to keep their intrigues hidden. As by De Haven. Who we said on the past episode.
2: This is where false flags fit in, really. Is this idea that it's the government at work to manipulate public opinion or have ethical upper hand when entering a conflict that is unethical uneth- or <gasps>
1: black helicopters?
2: Yeah, they come by a lot. <laughs> I saw I saw two black ones and a red one come over at the same time today. I'm not kidding. What does that mean? Call Alex Jones. Alex Jones! They were coming for him, clearly. Or us. All of our Googling. Like, really, they are actually coming for us.
1: So in the past false flags and conspiracies we discussed, most of them were a preeminence to war.
2: Right, they made war seem unavoidable. But
1: the false flags that are mentioned now, while sometimes can reflect that, are often more related to Controlling the sheeple.
2: Right. Manipulating the populace. I, you may be wondering right now, bah, why we keep calling you sheeple, bah. We can't help it. We have had our Wake Up America blend coffee, which you can purchase in the InfoWars store. And we are. I took my male vitality drops
1: as well from the InfoWars store.
2: And I have had my silver bullet colloidal silver cure all. So we are on our game and now we know that most people in the world are compliant like sheep so you put sheep and people together and you get sheeple it's clever you get it it's clever so, it was coined in the 1940s it's been
1: around a while but alex jones very much popularized the yeah. idea so according to a poll a few years ago so there might be more now <laughs> by public policy polling 28% of Americans believe a secret power elite is conspiring to rule the world through a global authoritarian government. 50% of people believe the government adds mind control technology to televisions and broadcasts.
2: They wanted to. See episode Kool-Aid.
1: So a big tenet of conspiracy theories in general it is that the US government is orchestrating these events these false flag like operations to control the people. And this can include so many things. And I'm going to use some Alex Jones quotes to illustrate it just because he is the king of conspiracy.
2: No, I mean that is he is the primary source, right? That's what we've got to do, right? You go back to the to the origin
1: story. And he is the source. He is what's publishing it digitally. He's By this spreading the way it does and changing is creating what people call digital folklore.
2: Absolutely. We do not endorse his viewpoints on many, 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 many things. We will be citing him here. Buckle up. On
1: about September 11th, 2001, he said the government is either using provocateur Arabs and allowing them to do it, or this is full complicity with the federal government. He said this on September 11th, 2001.
2: Getting in on the ground floor.
1: About the Aurora, Colorado shooting, he said, 100% chance that the mass murder committed was a false flag mind control event. About Columbine, he said, we know it was a false flag. I'd say 100% false flag. I think
2: he doesn't understand percents.
1: About the Boston bombing, I have never seen a false flag provocateur staged event by a government come apart faster than it is right now jones also said that globalists caused the space shuttle columbia disaster to serve as a distraction from iraq the war in iraq he also said the attack in orlando was a false flag terror attack he said but before the mainstream media takes that out of context i want to be clear our government and the government of europe allow these huge hordes of radical jihadis in and have even allowed them in without vetting them on record landing in airports across the country, and not even checking their passports, IDs, or visas. Our governments are bringing these people in, and they're allowing them to operate openly in our society so they can attack us and then have our freedom taken.
2: Well, fun fact, not to debunk early, not to do that. I hate to Japan. do that. I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> the shooter, the Orlando shooter, was was born in New York. Yeah, he was a U.S. citizen. Sorry. <laughs> Almost. Real close.
1: Sorry to ruin your conspiracy party. Um, about Sandy Hook.
2: No. No. Yeah,
1: I know. This is, besides 9-11, just one of the most ridiculous things. The whole thing is a giant hoax. And the problem is, how do you deal with a total hoax? I mean, it's just, how do you even convince the public something's a total hoax?
2: You know, I've never really read anything or seen him say anything that I was like, man, I know what you're saying. But after spending a week in InfoWars land, I know exactly what he means. But from the other side, because my my patience has been tested like it. But what tests my patience
1: about this case is that he says, I don't know if kids really got killed. The quote. And he mocked grief over the Sandy Hook victims complaining that they're just putting them in our faces and he and many conspiracy theorists often cite false flag actors and sandy hook is one of the biggest one that goes up there they're saying they're all children actors green screens and they were doing photo shoots and etc
2: that's just i'm gonna use it i'm gonna use that word and i don't use unless it's really 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 well deserved that's fucking tacky it's Horrible.
1: So discussing the shooting of Representative Gabby Gifford in January of 2011, he said, This whole thing stinks to high heaven. My gut tells me this was a staged mind control operation. The government employs geometric psychological warfare experts that know exactly how to indirectly manipulate unstable people through the media.
2: Oh, does he have the same geometric psychological tactics to manipulate unstable people through the media? Because I think maybe he does. No. No,
1: he's a patriot. He's
2: he's patriot.
1: I had this question, so I looked it up. Okay. Like why? Like you would think, like oh, patriot, American, supports America. No, because the American flag is the people's flag, and he's standing for the real America.
2: He says he's a paleo conservative.
1: Oh, that's clever,
2: right? He does
1: know how to turn a phrase. God damn it! He says they want to get rid of God, not because they're atheists, but because they want the state to be God. Then they'll release the big one, and they'll kill probably half the population of the United States. Folks, I'm telling you right now, I'm sure of it. They're going to stage terror attacks. When did
2: he say that?
1: I don't know. He says stuff like that all the time.
2: He said that one before 9-11.
1: He got one right.
2: Yeah. uh, Well, no. If. It's a big if here. Hefty if. If you believe that the government staged it, he got it right.
1: Right. Right.
2: But an interesting
1: thing about him is that he believes it. He's in on it. He really buys it. You know, he says, I have deep context for every claim I make. I know some people say I exaggerate, but I believe everything I say. It's just that denial is so strong, the apathy is so deep, that people need something to shake them out of their morass. It's like one of those drawings with a hidden pattern. Once you stare long enough, it appears. Then you wonder, how did I ever not see it?
2: Shadowy cabal magic eye. I could never see those magic eyes. I believe that 100%.
1: So, as you see, he is constantly claiming things are false flags. And he helpfully has stated on the site Infowars ways to spot false flags. They are used in ostensibly democratic systems where people believe they have inalienable rights, such as the United States, Israel, Great Britain. They must shock people into sociopolitical and geopolitical consent, and as such require sophisticated, modern propaganda systems and advanced covert operation teams with highly proficient skills. So here are warning signs of a false flag. Immediate, comprehensive narrative along... With a convenient culprit. This official narrative is usually not questioned by the media, and they quickly name and demonize the patsies. The official narrative has obvious domestic and geopolitical advantages for the governing body, and the narrative behind the attack serves to leverage emotions like fear as well as patriotism in order to manufacture consent around a previously controversial issue. It can also divide the population, and often the federal government is involved. So it's usually a top-level operation.
2: Right, states aren't doing this. Well... (laughs) So let's use this rubric, and let's evaluate some situations. Let's look and see if we can find anything that might fit in.
1: Last we left off in history, the Gulf of Tonkin occurred.
2: Yes, and then we started having... NAM flashbacks, or flash sideways, or flash forwards, depending on which season of Lost you're on. So let's have a little NAM flashbacks. Okay, so NAM is taking place, and people are not happy about it. For whatever reason, the government has not appropriately sold its false flag initiative, and the sheeple are restless.
1: So we have protests, we have counter-protests, we have new groups forming. This is the time of social upheaval and change.
2: Right. We've seen Forrest Gump. You remember this. But there are those among the American populace who don't want social upheaval, who don't want the status quo to be tampered with, and they have a leader. Who's that? Why, J. Edgar, son. It's going to be hard to fill his pumps. I tell you.
1: So we did talk about J. Edgar Hoover some in the Lavender Scare episode and his shadowy cabal.
2: J. Edgar Hoover is one of the few individuals in history who really has his very own shadowy cabal. It, I mean, that's shade. But on November 27th of 1970, Hoover testified before an appropriation subcommittee. Willingness to employ any type of terrorist tactics is becoming increasingly apparent among extremist elements. One example has recently come to light, involving an insipid plot on the part of an anarchist group on the East Coast. The so-called East Coast Conspiracy to Save Lives.
1: He's routed out a conspiracy.
2: Well, that's what they call themselves. Really? Yes. Hmm, should have thought of that one. This militant group, self-described as being composed of Catholic priests and nuns, teachers, students, former students who have manifested opposition to the Vietnam War by acts of violence against government agencies and private corporations engaged in work relating to U.S. participation in the Vietnam conflict. Priests and nuns and teachers? Oh, my. It's, the, it's like the antithesis of the Desert of Oz, like lions and tigers and bears, oh, my. Principal leaders in this group are Philip and Daniel Berrigan, Catholic priests to currently incarcerated in Federal Correctional Institute in Danbury, Connecticut, for their participation in the destruction of selective service records in Baltimore, Maryland in 1968. Wait, they were in prison? Yes, they had been caught in association with some break-ins that were happening at military recruitment sites where draft cards were kept, and they would break in and...
1: Burn them.
2: No, 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 no. no actually, they had a better plan than that. They were very well organized. They would steal them, and then they would mail them back to the man who would be registered on that card. And they would say, like, if you'd like to serve, you're welcome to do so. Please send it back. And if you don't, maybe we've given you a couple more months. So
1: they were subversives.
2: Oh, hell yes. And they were because of Vatican II, which is really interesting, because there had been a call for pacifism in the Catholic Church before the 60s really before the 50s I guess it was all about you know patriotism and it, you fight the war and you do what your country says um, but with Vatican II and a lot of the changes that were happening and the kind of liberalization of the Catholic Church pacifism was rooted out of scripture and they were like oh look that this is a Jesus did a little subtle disobedience himself and he was like not about killing people in war and stuff so maybe Maybe we don't do it. So there's some
1: actual thinking behind this. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Philosophical and theological ideas. Yes. So what did J. Edgar Hoover say they were planning to do?
2: Well, they did plan. So he was right about that. They were very thorough. But he revealed before the Appropriations Committee... This group plans to blow up underground electrical conduits, steam pipes serving Washington D.C. area in order to disrupt federal government operations. The plotters are also concocting a scheme to kidnap a highly placed government official. The name of a White House staff member has been mentioned as a possible victim. If successful, the plotters would demand an end to the United States bombing operations in Southeast Asia and the release of all political prisoners as ransom. Intensive investigation is being conducted concerning the matter. There has been an alarming increase in the extremist inspired attacks against law enforcement officers in recent months, with the majority of these cases involving black extremists. FBI information shows that from January 1st, 1970, Through November 12th of 1970, there were more than 211 rationally motivated assaults during which 23 law enforcement officers were killed and 181 injured. Doesn't mention Kent State, but whatever. I think at this point there were seven dead protesters just, just in the peace movement. So not counting those, but whatever. And also this little slip in of black extremists here at the end, because that's just how Hoover rolls. That's just how he rolls.
1: Don't miss an opportunity.
2: Nope. So, interestingly, this testimony was released to the media the same day that it was given. That's odd. And it was also mailed out in a 26-page booklet, just in case you missed it a couple of weeks later.
1: Like, to the media.
2: To the media, to people in power, to probably anyone Hoover had a file on. I don't know. His Christmas card list. Not sure.
1: So, Hoover was setting up an event. He was naming Patsies. And he had created a media story and literally mailed it to him. Yep. Hmm.
2: Right. Very interesting. Also interesting is no one had a warrant out for their arrest. No one had been indicted. No one was being sought by law enforcement. No one had been informed of the charges that stood against them. Nothing. This was the first anyone involved with East Coast Conspiracy to Save Lives or the Berrigan brothers heard about these charges father did you read the paper today (laughs) i'm in prison no i didn't read the paper today so yes there was an immediate comprehensive narrative was there any obvious benefit to this testimony who was he testifying before the congressional subcommittee on appropriations
1: appropriations
2: as in budgeting
1: as in money
2: as in i need more money i've got to hire more agents to deal with all these radical extremists hmm interesting interesting interesting
1: Need some G's for those G-men.
2: Mmm, exactly. And a new pair of pumps. (laughs) And then he breaks into a rap video in the middle of Congress. So, yes, I would say that there was a clear agenda with needing somebody to be a bad guy. Also, like I said, Kent State had happened. Kent State student protesters were killed by law enforcement. And there had been a lot of violence toward the student toward the peace movement there was an incident in new york city where a bunch of people involved with the labor union went and beat protesters while wearing hard hats but anyway lots of violence there was getting a lot of negative press so we have to convince them that they're not just out there holding signs we need them to be radical we need them violent. to be violent yes they're and
1: kidnap somebody
0: yes
2: And then he definitely does name the Patsy and demonize them. He says that they are going to, you know, they have shown that they'll be violent. And I guess violence was the break-ins. It's not technically violence, but I guess he means.
1: Definitely aggressive.
2: (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's the right word. And then
1: he's also, like you said, he's leveraging that emotion. He's building up that case against them and against their patriotism.
2: He does draw out the fact that they're Catholic priests and nuns, etc. And I think he's still playing with that anti-Catholic sentiment that we you know, discussed on our Night Doctors episode. And he's also saying, literally, it could be anyone. We can trust no one. You need us between you and them.
1: can be your sweet little old priest planning on s- blowing up D.C.
2: So I thought it was interesting. I had not heard a lot about the Catholic resistance movement. And so I found an article about this written by a priest at the time, but he came out in support of the accused. And he's talking about a woman who would eventually be indicted as one of their co-conspirators. Mary Skoblik is a member of the Harrisburg seven. Her transition from a seemingly quiet, innocuous Catholic nun to a radical anti-war activist engaging in civil disobedience is typical of what is happening in the radical Catholic left today. Raised in a strictly traditional Catholic environment, Mary entered the Sisters of Notre Dame de Namur in 1959. Her teaching assignments took her into the ghetto, where she and some friends lived close in order to be near the people that they were teaching. Like many others, she began to relate to urban misery to the Vietnam War. In working for the Defense Committee of Cantonsville Nine, she became involved with the Catholic radicals. Among them was a priest named Tony Skolovick with whom she fell in love and later married in June of 1970. Mary Skolbrook's story is similar to hundreds of priests and nuns across the country who have gone from helping involvement with poor and oppressed to radical opposition of government policies. The Harrisburg Seven, which is what the group will eventually be known as, are a sort of a spearhead of the radical Catholic left at the moment. As a member of the radical Catholic left, therefore, I want to reflect on the record my feelings as I prepare to depart for Harrisburg. The transition has taken many agonizing years, but now I am convinced that we are surrounded by institutions that contradict the spirit of the gospel, institutions that hinder rather than promote human development and freedom. I feel a burden of guilt for not doing enough in the past. Many Catholics cannot understand how or why priests and nuns get involved in incidents of draft file burnings. William Lynch, a staunch Catholic, has said that he considers such priests and nuns worse than criminals who make their money from gambling and drugs. He's probably never had an opportunity to discuss seriously the social implications of Christianity with a radical priest or nun whom they knew and respected. Hence, he and other good Catholics do not understand. If this brings retaliation, then I must be happy when people abuse me and persecute me or speak all kinds of calumny against me on Christ's account. Because Jesus said, this is how they persecuted the prophets before you. Maybe Mary Showbuck is right. The amount of repression leveled against you is the measure of your effectiveness.
1: And Hoover has leveled some charges against them.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean,
1: this perfectly fits with our rubric that Alex Jones has set up in his InfoWars, and you can see it on many other conspiracy sites, of things to look for that say false flag so what happened in this case
2: well two lawyers representing the Berrigan brothers william k Kunzler and william c cunningham immediately issued a statement which read if mr hoover had the evidence he claims to have it would be his sworn duty to see the barrigans and their alleged co-conspirators prosecuted for serious crimes they called hoover's testimony a far-fetched spy story to persuade the subcommittee to approve supplemental appropriation. Representative William R. Anderson, a Democrat from Tennessee, in a letter to Hoover dated November 30th, said that he had visited the Berrigan brothers three times at Danbury and that he was convinced they have always followed the course of total nonviolence toward their fellow human beings. Anderson wrote, if there's any substance to your allegations against the Barrigans, Mr. Hoover, I respectfully submit that it is your duty to arraign them before a federal grand jury and seek an indictment. If, on the other hand, there is no substance, or if your remarks were misconstrued, then certainly we would expect an explanation, if not an outright retraction.
1: He's asking for facts. Yeah. Not arguments.
2: Crazy. So after some scrambling and J. Edgar Hoover being very miffed that everyone was just not going to get on this bandwagon, there were indictments on January 12th of 1971. And the Berrigan's were both indicted along with four other co-conspirators. They said that they were, had been planning to blow up heating plants on George Washington's birthday. And the indictments also said that the group planned to kidnap... Who? Henry Kissinger. <gasps> Henry Kissinger. Oh my God! And so, that was big news.
1: Can you do a Henry Kissinger impersonation? He sounds like Marlon Brando on helium with an accent.
2: Which accent?
1: <laughs> Pick one.
2: Oh God! Uh, are we gonna go here? Is this the Kissinger? I, 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 was, I think it could. Mm, let's call it on this one. Be the Kissinger. <laughs> I'm. This kind of
1: Truman Capote.
2: This is the Truman Capote. That would be ridiculous.
1: What happened when they said they were going to kidnap Kissinger?
2: Truman Capote came to visit. And everyone had a party.
1: I mean, I know that Kissinger said that they were these sex-starved
2: nuns that were coming to get him. He really did say that. And it's really amazing. And he had to issue a formal apology later. Because <laughs> it was made in poor taste. But man, it was funny. I think the nuns knew it was funny. An editorial came out about this shortly after by Russell Baker called The Status Seekers. And it's Quite entertaining. He says, Washington, suddenly it is extremely important to upper drawer White House people to be kidnapped. This began when the FBI accused several nuns and priests of planning to kidnap Henry Kissinger of the White House staff. According to J. Edgar Hoover, the ecclesiastics intended to hold Kissinger until the United States agreed to end the Vietnam War. Whether or not the FBI's story is accurate, It has given immense lift to Kissinger's prestige. The idea that he is so vital to the U.S. that the government would give up its favorite war to get him back in the White House.
1: Or that he was so good looking.
2: (laughs) He wasn't. Google him. (laughs) That makes Kissinger one considerable fellow. Naturally, all other upper drawer bureaucrats who have not been objects of kidnap plots, real or alleged, have been put in the shadow. Many are green with kidnap envy and others are hounded by their wives to do something that will close the gap between them and Kissinger. And then he goes on to imply that he's been speaking with the president of the United States, and they discuss several ways that he can either get kidnapped, they're no takers, or make it seem that Kissinger arranged this whole thing himself. And he says, huh, I would never do that. I'd have to contradict if- J. Edgar <laughs> Hoover. And that's the stupidest thing a politician can do.
1: And of course, in hindsight, it's hilarious, because it's nixon and he's saying that jokingly that nixon should start these like whisper campaigns and conspiracies and um he kind of kind of did that
2: (laughs) yeah and uh kissinger had his entire white house staff pretty much bugged and a couple of reporters too and it's in hindsight this is all real funny j edgar hoover did have shit on both of them and when he thought he was going to have to turn over his files in a case he called nixon and said If I am indicted, I will have to tell all that I know. All that I know. And, like, hung up.
1: Even that you haven't returned my dress from (laughs) last fall.
2: (laughs) I damn J. Edgar's on the phone again. So, kidnapping Kissinger was big fun. He is actually quite funny about it. He said that sex-starved nuns were going to take him. But the more fun fact is that several anti-war or peace activists were given a meeting with Kissinger. And as they're going through, being screened by the Secret Service, one of them sets a metal detector off. And they pat him down, and they find this little bag, and they open it, and it's full of little lapel buttons. And they say, kidnap Kissinger? And the White House guards... I want one. <laughs> I want one, too. White House guards thought they were hilarious, and they asked the guy for one, and he gave them all kidnap Kissinger buttons. So... For the rest of the day at the White House, the guards were kidnap Kissinger buttons. And that is my favorite. So the people who were going in to see Kissinger were William Davidon, Tom Davidson, and Sister Beverly Bell, a nun who was quite sex-starved. And they were invited to discuss the war with Mr. Kissinger in the Situation Room. And that was around March the 1st of 1971. Kissinger joked that he had told Nixon that he was under no circumstances to be ransomed, meaning, for God's sake, don't stop the war. And Shirley McLean had helped arrange the meeting. Davidon later said of Kissinger, I felt he was one of the brighter people in the Nixon administration, brighter and more skillful at doing terrible things. I agree with that statement. I (laughs) do too. The trial of Harrisburg 7 took place in Pennsylvania with former Attorney General Ramsey Clark representing the defendants, which is interesting. Former Attorney General Hmm. going against the FBI.
1: His file's coming out. (laughs)
2: Yeah, that's that's got some nasty chicken scratch in the sides. And it ended in a hung jury.
1: So no decision.
2: No decision. There were a couple of minor counts that they found Philip Berrigan and sister McAllister guilty of contraband, passing letters from jail, things of that nature. But the defense put in post trial motions claiming that there had been a discriminatory prosecution and illegal surveillance. And the FBI did not care for this. I can't imagine. Do you know what happened in 1972 as all this is finishing up? Guess what's the worst thing that could happen?
1: The illustrious J. Edgar Hoover dies.
2: He does. And everyone is left trying to put together all the cryptic half pieces of information that they have regarding the way that the FBI works and what they've done. I feel like they've kind of been left there holding the frickin' bag.
1: The bag of illegal
2: intelligence. Guys, did you know this was here? It's like when your friend leaves trucks in your car. Yeah, that's happened to me. I'm like, shit. <laughs> I swear to God, I didn't know this was here. So some of my favorite excerpts from the EastCon file, which is what they began calling the East Coast Conspiracy to Save Lives, are these really interesting highlights of spin or just different perspectives. Like really getting to see this from two sides is interesting. I think some of it is perspective. I really, I do too. Cause,
1: cause these are s- secret files, right?
2: Yes. So, I
1: mean, they didn't have to spin it. This right. is for like them. Like, this is this for like Bob and J Edgar Hoover and that's it.
2: <laughs> right. These are inner office kind of like memos, briefings, reports, things of that nature. And This one came out when they leveled the discriminatory prosecution motion. They're suspicious that Mr. Clark has done this because of his well-known personal feelings against Mr. Hoover. And then they go on to discuss whether or not the charges are valid. And he says, "...inasmuch as Clark and his fellow counsel chose to offer no defense, it would appear that they forfeited their right to pursue the issue any further." But true to their disdain for established procedures and ethics, they continue to offer baseless or erroneous statements as fact in support of their claim. The basic issue here is alleged pressure on the department by Mr. Hoover to force prosecution. The facts are that Mr. Hoover did not force the department into prosecution. And then there's a little box drawn around that part with a big line that comes down And in handwriting, it says, this is a conclusion. What are the facts? Question mark. Initials.
1: This is like the internal FBI writing.
2: Yes. And then he has another note. Let's start to put together draft paper now. And then there's another note. We have started on this.
1: (laughs) And all these documents, and there are a lot, are on the FBI website.
2: This one I found on a college's Website though this is not on FBI or haven't found it through is, the it Probably is on there. It's not an easy search. I'm not sure how it's filed. We are placed in a position of having to take no action against Clark's unfounded, unfair statements, inasmuch as Eastcon case is still in litigation, and any such action on our part would no doubt be used by the defense, interesting, as basis for motions for acquittal or directed verdict. When this matter has been completely resolved in the courts. And is no longer an issue. A documented paper should be prepared, and consideration giving to releasing it to the press in order to set the record straight and point out the inadequacies of Clark's statements. And this is interesting to me because they're like, we should totally write this up and document it. And then we should maybe think about giving it to the press. I mean, I'm not saying we have to give it to the press because we don't release
1: things. No, but I think they're also saying, like, let's write a spin article and give it to the press.
2: I don't think that this whoever is writing this memo Knows more of the petting of J. Edgar Hoover is going on here. This is another excerpt I love. This is about one of the women who've been indicted, one of the nuns that have been indicted in this plot to kidnap Henry Kissinger. And they've been observing her, they've been following her around during the time before she was officially arrested, going to every speech she gave, every meeting she went to, sitting outside her home, surveilling her from her her friend's home. I mean, this is a 500 page file. But my favorite quote about her is she spoke of the war in Vietnam and alleged United States crimes there. The subject denied involvement in any conspiracy and accused FBI director J. Edgar Hoover of making accusations and then tried to find evidence to back up those accusations.
1: No. (laughs) Talk about self-fulfilling prophecy.
2: I know. So I think that this case is really one of the first chinks in the FBI's armor and all of this strikes me as really interesting because like they were subpoenaed for evidence and we're like no
1: we don't have any
2: no no we're not gonna we can't give you the evidence because the case is in litigation what (laughs) that's actually in an office memo and I love it (laughs) the judge is like what
1: no that's not how it works
2: And this is because J. Edgar Hoover sat on his files like a frickin' hen with a nest. Like, he was not letting that shit get out. He did all of this counterintelligence, all of this domestic espionage, everything he did, trying to keep communism out of America for a long time. And then there was proof that there was a woman who was trying to smuggle FBI files to a Russian diplomat. What? Oh yeah. She was gonna do it. And so, when she was indicted... They're like, "All right, so uh give us the files she stole. We're going to look them over and we will decide her sentence based on the severity and the nature of the the document she stolen." Who was like, "Nope." And like, "Beg pardon?" He's like, mm-mm. They're like, "Just give us the files." He's like, "No. I'm not gonna." And so the woman, she was charged, charges were overturned because there was not evidence, etc. And but he would not allow the charges against her to be dropped. Like she couldn't leave New York she was not allowed to go to New Jersey to see her father's tombstone Unveiled because she had pending Charges against her she could have been Reindicted
1: shouldn't have been a Russian spy
2: Right that's gonna be our angle Here (laughs) right that's the That's the evil we're trying to point out
1: So we know That this information did Get out because we wouldn't be talking about it Right now
2: well it did And the way it did Is a really good story so, William Davidon, you remember that name? Maybe. He was in the Kissinger meeting. Yes. On March 1st.
1: He had a pen. He needs to mail me one.
2: He didn't. Another dude did. I bet he had one. I bet he had at least one. Okay, so he was really bothered by this case with Barrigans. He'd been getting working with them, and he'd done a few of the draft office break-ins. And he was beginning to see it as a really effective means of civil disobedience and nonviolent protest. And so when they were alleging this really outlandish, like, spy movie plot, he was like, this is silly. The government was like, by the way, we're going to invade Cambodia. And he was like, oh, no, hell no. He suspected that the FBI was doing some shady business because they, because of the way they were treating the virgins, because of the amount of Times that he would see them lurking outside of his home. And he was actually an unindicted co-conspirator in the Harrisburg case, in the plot to kidnap Kissinger. And he was conspiring, but not to do that. So he decided to form the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI in the summer of 1970.
1: He was turning on his head. He was like, we're going to investigate you. This is meta.
2: And so he gathered together a group of people that he trusted. Looking back, it seems like a crazy idea. I mean, it is. It's a crazy idea.
1: One of the people in this committee involved in investigating the FBI stated, it looks like we're terribly reckless people, but there was absolutely no one in Washington, senators, congressmen, even the president, who dared hold J. Edgar Hoover to accountability it became pretty obvious to us that if we didn't do it, nobody will.
2: And what he's referring to is the massive amounts of blackmail that would go on behind the scenes. And they had seen this firsthand. Because if you remember our friend Anderson, who came to the defense of the Berrigan brothers. Well, Hoover launched a private little investigation into him and talked to enough madams that one of them kind of was like, yeah, I think I've seen him before. And he went back to the, the file he kept on Anderson in and his desk pulled it out and in the margins of the page wrote whoremonger the rumor was spread he lost his next re-election after being one of the longest serving representatives i mean and then of course the harrisburg 7 trial right so they're like it's not looking good we're gonna have to do something drastic
1: and then they do it
2: they break into the fbi and steal files they
1: break into the fbi
2: (laughs) yep so They planned to break into the FBI building in Media, Pennsylvania on March 8th, 1971. And they had a good reason for choosing that date. Something was happening here.
1: The Muhammad Ali-Joe Frazier fight.
2: Two undefeated world champions. How does that happen, you ask? Because Muhammad Ali would not register with the Selective Service. So they would not allow him to fight. So while he was suspended from professional boxing... Joe Frazier became the world champion. And so when Joe Frazier knew that he had to beat Ali in order to actually be the world champion, because no one would believe it if he didn't, he went to Nixon and said, I need to fight him.
1: I'm the greatest.
2: He didn't say that. Muhammad Ali said that. Oh, he said it. He did not. <laughs> he did not say that. But so they scheduled this big fight, and it's one of the biggest deals in the whole world. And there's some amazing sports journalism on it. You should go read about it. But. The thought was from the media burglars. They're distracted. Everyone else is watching the fight. We're not watching the fight. We're a bunch of non sports people. Dirty hippies. They were, sort of. But not like you think. The group included Davidon, who is a physics professor. John and Bonnie Rains, who are maybe my favorite people ever. They're adorable. They were a married couple and at the time they had three kids, an eight year old, a nine year old, and a two year old. He was a professor and taught religion and she was a preschool teacher there was also keith forsyth who had gone to college somebody handed him a book about how vietnam was a bad idea and he read it and was like this is bullshit and he ends up like reading every book he can get his hands on on vietnam and calling the state department and being like hey i've read all this material i would like to read the other side can you direct me to some books that justify our action in vietnam and they gave him like one book at a seventh grade reading level. And he read it and was Thanks. like, and he called back. He's like, I am going to need some more books. And they're like, that's it. That's all we've got. You're like, buy J.E. Hoover. <laughs> who is Jessica Hoover? So, but he was a younger guy who dropped out of school and got involved with the peace movement. There was also Bob Williamson, who was a social worker. Two others who were involved, but wished to remain nameless. And a woman named Judy Feingold who the group all thought was dead for years. But she resurfaced in 2015. Well, they were very unassuming people. At the beginning, they were eight. But the week before the burglary, somebody who'd been there with them the entire time, they were planning and plotting this, one of them just, just like, I'm dropping out. So that's good for security. Hoover would kill him.
1: <laughs> well, I was going to say they had to wonder if he was a, a plant.
2: I don't think they were that paranoid yet. They should have been. I know. (laughs) So they planned, and they cased, and they surveilled, and they practiced for months, and they would all meet at John and Bonnie's house. John and Bonnie would hire a babysitter to come over after dinner, and they would be like, all right, we're going out. And they would go out, and they would all sneak in the attic of their house, and they said the walls were covered with maps, and they had installed a false door with a replica lock that looked like the door on the media building so that Keith could practice picking it over and over and over and over again. They didn't write on any papers. Like, everything was written, like, on chalkboards. They kept no written records through the entire time they are doing this. And eventually, Bonnie called the FBI office and said she was writing a paper and wanted to know about the FBI's hiring practices. And would it be okay if she came in and conducted an interview with one of the agents? And he's like, sure. And she wore a... Glasses and a hat. The Superman disguise. Uh And gloves. She did a thorough casing of the inside of the building and decided there was no alarm, which was very good news. And that most of the file cabinets didn't have locks on them, which is very, very good news. And so after she came back, they were ready to do the burglary. Now, I would like to mention here that Davidon was at the White House having a meeting with Kissinger around March 1st. And this is March 8th. Low profile. (laughs) Nice. So on the night of the burglary, Keith goes by himself to pick the lock on the door. The lock. One. But he gets there and there's another lock. And he starts to worry if they knew they were coming and they put the other lock there. And were there going to be FBI agents just on the other side of the door? What if there were FBI agents on the other side of the door? He'd be dead. I know. And so he thinks about it for a while and he goes and checks this one other door, but there's a giant filing cabinet on the other side and he knows it. It's not the same lock. He has homemade lock picking tools. He gets really nervous about it, but then he's like, okay, it's fine. It's fine. If somebody comes out of the apartments above or below, yes, this is in a residential building. It's just one floor of offices. I look fine. I'm a hair's cut. I'm wearing a Brooks Brothers suit. I have a Brooks Brothers overcoat and a briefcase. They're not going to notice. So he tries to pick the lock on the second door, and eventually goes and gets a crowbar out of his car. It's like screw it. Yes. And he literally lays down on the floor and puts his feet against the door and pushes the door open with his feet. So he, imagine, this is in a commercial hallway or residential hallway. There's a man in a suit around 10 o'clock at night, laying on the floor, pushing with his feet.
1: He's having a fit. <laughs>
2: And he's like, I could not imagine what I would have said if someone had just walked out and they could have. We finally gets the door open. and He goes back to the hotel room where they were had decided to that would be their op- base of operations and tells them that they can go in. And other members of the group go and they pack suitcases with files and files and files, empty everything out of the entire office.
1: You know, the guy that lost the bet on the Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier fight, mm-hmm. is the guy that found this. Like, found the empty. That's
2: <laughs> <laughs> <Yes, laughs> worst day ever. Like, over as... Fuck. Oh, <laughs> it, like, goes in. Mother. Like, God damn. <laughs> oh, Madam Hoover is not going to like this. Not a bit. So, they used suitcases because they thought it would look less suspicious than, like, garbage bags. And they all dress nicely. They
1: tuck their hair up under their
2: hats? I think they got haircuts.
1: Wow, they were committed.
2: They were. They made a phone call to the hotel, let them know they were done, and then they all drove two to a car along separate routes to a Quaker retreat that was this big old farmhouse that had been used for all kinds of peace activism. Martin Luther King had stayed there. They went there with their files. And the next morning, when it was time to go home, none of them slept. John and Bonnie pulled off the road. And he went to a payphone and he called a Reuters reporter and read them a prepared statement.
1: He said on the night of March 8th, 1971, the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI removed files from the Media Pennsylvania Office of the FBI. These files will now be studied to determine, one, the nature and extent of surveillance and intimidation carried on by the Office of the FBI, particularly against groups and individuals working for a more just, humane, and peaceful society. Two, to determine how much of the FBI's efforts are spent on relatively minor crimes by the poor and the powerless against whom they can get a more glamorous conviction rate, instead of investigating truly serious crimes by those with money and influence, which cause great damage to the lives of many people. Crimes such as war profiteering, monopolistic practices institutional racism organized crime and the mass distribution of lethal drugs finally three the extent of illegal practices by the fbi such as eavesdropping entrapment and the use of provocateurs and informers man that sounds like some conspiracy theory craziness
2: okay get your tinfoil hat out nice. yes mm-hmm. i'm sure you did okay this is all that comes out for two weeks. And the reporter is like, yeah, I'm not running that story, whatever. He calls media, finds out there's been a break-in, says some people broke in, took some files, whatever. Just kind of... He works for Reuters. Reuters doesn't do America stuff just yet. Not the way they will.
1: Do you think they were hoping like to get out of America? Like to get a... You know, of that may Global. not be under the influence of the FBI?
2: I, I think that's a possibility especially when you look at the next phase so for two weeks or i think about 10 days they spent time going through the files they removed anything that mentioned like organized crime or homicide investigation you know things the fbi should be investigating and then they chose journalists and public officials and mailed copied and collated bunches of files and sent them anonymously in three separate waves And there was a similar statement to the one that was made over the phone enclosed with each of the packets in order to link the trail. You have someone calling the day after the burglary. It's a way of kind of back authenticating what you have. Right. They're very smart. They really
1: are. But then most people were like, "Um, okay, (laughs) and just sent it to the FBI.
2: No, most people were scared as shit. They sent it to people in the Senate. Well, you don't cross Hoover. There was one senator who was like, oh, I've accidentally sent you the file that I copied. I'll send you the original copy that was mailed to me. (laughs) So, you know, he was in his office copying everything, which I think is kind of great. Like an accidental. Oops. Yeah. But one reporter,
1: one reporter bought it.
2: Yeah. Because she works for a liberal rag.
1: The Washington Post.
2: I saw that on InfoWars, and it's all I could think about this week, because it's a liberal rag.
1: And it's your favorite paper.
2: It is. Jacobs' New York Times, We're a House Divided. Her name was Elizabeth Metzer, and she was a religion writer.
1: What was she doing with this?
2: Well, the Catholics, the nuns, oh, the nuns. Yeah. The Catholic
1: conspiracy. Radical Catholic
2: <laughs> left. Yeah, those. Those. And so she published the pages of the files that were sent to her, or her report on them, after verifying that they were real. On the front page on March 24th. Oh. Now, it seems like the efforts that were made to get the files to the New York Times and the LA Times may have actually been intercepted by higher-ups because they were sent to more prominent writers. But because this came directly to her box and she shared a cubicle with, like, five other people and was kind of, you know, a young reporter, not huge street cred in the mainstream yet. Got by to her... And she had a really unique opportunity. Miss Metzger's article, this is from the New York Times, cited... The what, the what paper? The New the, York Times. The what paper? The New York Times. Okay,
1: just the paper record.
2: Well, this is after Not the Washington... liberal rag. <laughs> this is after the Washington Post published her book on the subject, and they couldn't cover it because of nepotism. Metzger's article cited what was perhaps the most damning document from the cachet, a 1970 memorandum that offered a glimpse into Hoover's obsession with snuffing out dissent. The document urged agents to step up their investigations of anti-war activists and members of dissident student groups.
1: It said it will enhance the paranoia endemic in these circles and will further serve to get the point across there is an FBI agent behind every mailbox.
2: Another document signed by Hoover revealed widespread FBI surveillance of black student groups on college campuses. And after reviewing the documents, Noam Chomsky... Noam Chomsky! Noam Chomsky! He was one of the people that looked over, like, everything and kind of did, like, a cataloging and analysis. You know, Noam Chomsky things.
1: No no wonder he's such a...
2: Conspiracy theorist? Yes, I know. According to its analysis, the documents in this FBI office were 1% devoted to organized crime, mostly gambling. 30% were manuals and routine forms, similar procedural manner. 40% were devoted to political surveillance and the like, including two cases involving right-wing groups, 10 concerning immigrants, and over 200 on the left, liberal groups. Another 14% of the documents concerned resistance to draft or leaving the military without government permission. The remainder concerned bank robberies, murder, rape, and interstate theft.
1: So before this, before this all came out, This is fringe. This was conspiracy theory. The FBI is trying to create paranoia, is surveilling everybody, trying to create dissent among people they think are radicals, creating false flag-like operations. I mean, this was the stuff of Infowars.
2: Oh, absolutely. Keith Forsythe said, When you talk to people outside the movement about what the FBI was doing, nobody wanted to believe it. There was only one way to convince people that it was true. And that was to get it in their own handwriting. They did. That's a rare thing for a conspiracy theory.
1: Right, they did. And this incited people to start looking into it. And we've talked about the church committee before. They are who got the LSD documents and the MK Ultra documents released and investigated that.
2: They were eventually like, hey, you remember that bag? You remember that bag? Yeah, the handbag that Hoover left you with, with all the shady shit in it. We're going to need to go through your purse. You have like seven hard candies out of the wrapper and all the world's shit in here.
1: Can you hit me a butterscotch? There's a hair on it. An <laughs> LSD tab stuck to it. Have fun with that. But the church committee was one of many people in groups that were able to get a lot of these documents out. And of course, this was after Hoover had died.
2: I really think if he like if he had lived to be one hundred and seventy, we would not have the documents. Like it just would not have happened.
1: I mean, I'm almost positive that his brain is still like saved somewhere, attached to some AI system in the FBI basement.
2: Oh my god! Can you imagine? Like if you worked at the FBI and you knew that was supposed to be out, if you're supposed to consult the Hoover bus, like you would be the person that brought it down to the basement and like covered it with a towel.
1: It's your turn. <laughs> I'm
2: not doing it. It's creepy, man. We talk so much shit. So, one of the documents was released after the media burglary had a little word on it. A code word? A code word. It looked like a code word. COINTELPRO.
1: COINTELPRO.
2: Carl Stern of NBC News was very bothered by this word. It was on a routing slip. It wasn't anything important, but just like, what What does that mean? Yeah, like a gut feeling. It was this rosebud moment. And so, eventually, I think he kind of went like, I'm going to find out what this means. And he sued to get the COINTELPRO documents, or some of them. And things began to come out. Locke K. Johnson, who's a professor of public and international affairs at the University of Georgia and a former aide to Senator Frank Church, Democrat of Idaho, said, It wasn't just spying on America. The intent of COINTELPRO was to destroy lives and ruin reputations. And when the final opinion of the church committee came out, this was its conclusion. Too many people have been spied upon by too many government agencies and too much information has been collected.
1: And it eventually came out that COINTELPRO stood for Counterintelligence Program. And so Hoover stated that the purpose of this new counterintelligence endeavor is to expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, are otherwise neutralized the activities of black nationalist, hate-type organizations and groupings, their leadership, spokesmen, membership, and supporters, such groups as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the Congress of Racial Equality, and the Nation of Islam. Now, they went after all of the subversives. They went after the new left, frequently disrupting protests against the Vietnam War, the Communist Party, the KKK... That's only
2: after Johnson made them start a file on the KKK.
1: And they used many, many different things to manipulate, create disinformation, create distrust, and to overall just discredit these organizations.
2: And increase the sense of paranoia. Right. Like there's an FBI agent behind every mailbox.
1: Right. They'd use infiltration, plants, agent provocateurs, they would either be just spying or kind of push people in a more radical direction. They would use psychological warfare. They would use harassment via, via the legal system.
2: Yeah, like we saw Harrisburg. that in the Harrisburg 7. And they would use illegal force,
1: as you see in many, many protests.
2: So one thing I found that was really interesting, I pulled up the COINTEL vault on FBI, and I just started going through, and I saw, like, Louisiana, new left. And I was like, I'll look at that is there anything in this file? There were like four names, but there was a plan of action that I thought was really interesting. And it included things like sending out alternate mailings, like mailing the the dates for meetings had been changed and, you know, intercepting mail, putting people in the organization to question their motives, like getting somebody in infiltrating and then having them be like, man, I don't know if we really need equal rights. That's kind of silly, right? I mean, (laughs) come on. But my favorite of all the tactics was at large meetings or conventions, a stink bomb could be placed. A stink bomb? A stink bomb could be placed in the heating or cooling system. And eventually there was a meeting in Detroit, and I have read so much that I cannot remember the name of the group, but they were going to send a tanker truck full of, quote, pig mess, more powerful than skunks. Nice. It was found out and stopped by the FBI. It was after Hoover died, or I think the stink bomb would have arrived. But stink bombs, this just tells you, these are children. These are children playing. Oh, they would
1: do so many just insane things, and the plans they would come up with. But they would, I mean, they plant news stories, mm-hmm. like we talked about.
2: like Mail out. By the way, here's the official narrative, uh, if you could just not be revisionist about this.
1: One of the big programs they had that came about among the urban unrest of July and August of 1967 is the COINTELPRO Black Nationalist Hate Groups plan. And so a March 1968 memo stated the program's goal was to, quote, Prevent the coalition of militant black nationalist groups, prevent the rise of a messiah, who could unify the militant black nationalist movement, to pinpoint potential troublemakers and neutralize them before they exercise the potential for violence... To prevent militant black nationalist groups and leaders from gaining respectability by discrediting them to both the responsible community and to liberals who have vestiges of sympathy, read white people. And to prevent the long-range growth of militant black organizations, especially among the youth. And so, they would do so many things.
2: That is so despicable. I just want to, like, before we move on. Oh, we're not moving on. We've got more. Okay.
1: So... One thing they did that was just to show just the
2: insidiousness
1: and also just the the links they would go is that they created you know, all these false pamphlets and false news stories. And they would create these false things that were supposedly from Martin Luther King's group or from the Nation of Islam or from the Black Panthers. And one thing they created was a Black Panther coloring book.
2: Like the comic book character. They made a comic book character.
1: No. No.
2: They made it it look like, get to know your favorite Black Panthers. And they put them all in there. And they all colored and learned to be more appreciative of diversity and opinions that were different from their own.
1: No. So it was supposed to be like a propaganda tool from the Black Panthers for children.
2: So, like, they had recovered it through intelligence.
1: Supposedly. Yeah. <laughs>
2: like, okay.
1: And it would have, like, pictures of, like, black kids killing pig police officers and being like, look at the black warrior child. And there's all this insane thing. It's absolutely insane. Google it. You're not gonna believe it. I get douche chills. But also that 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 idea of a messiah that they mentioned. And You can think of the obvious.
2: Okay, all the way. I mean, they definitely went out of their way to prevent him from ascending to a place of public prominence. They actually urged him to commit suicide.
1: Oh, they sent him suicide packages.
2: And they told him that they would release information about his marital infidelity unless he killed himself. It was known as Operation Hoodwink. You can look it up. That's on the FBI vault and pretty easy to find. And another person that they... Also singled out was Malcolm X. I mean, yes, obviously.
1: And so He scared the shit out of white people.
2: <laughs> like, let's be fair.
1: While he was killed by other Nation of Islam people, it's it's very well documented that the FBI had created dissent among the members. And also, his bodyguard for that day was an undercover police agent who later would infiltrate the New York chapter of the Black Panther Party and charge many of its leaders with various crimes. All of this... Oh, God! Oh, sweet. Really, out of all of this, the most unbelievable of things occurred on December 14th of 1969, when a select unit of 14 Chicago police officers, on a special assignment to Cook County State's Attorney Edward Hanrahan, executed a pre-dawn raid on a West Side apartment that left the Illinois Black Panther Party leaders Fred Hampton and Mark Clark dead. Several other young Panthers wounded and the seven raid survivors arrested on bogus attempted murder charges. Now, they did claim a shootout occurred. Now, evidence shows that police fired nearly 100 shots into the apartment and Panthers firing one now, in the wake of the that raid, that doesn't
2: seem like a shootout. Yeah,
1: in the wake of the raid, the minister of defense for the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, Bobby Rush, stood on the steps of the bullet-riddled Black Panther Party apartment and declared that J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI were responsible for the raid.
2: It sounds like a conspiracy theory, but I've read the files, and I have to to say I don't think it sounds crazy. So, like, when I say I read the documents, I just mean just a cursory reading of, like, a general COINTELPRO document. I mean, the way that they targeted black student groups, nonviolent black student groups. They thought it was just dangerous in general for black people to assemble, let alone have something to say. And, you know, I've grown up in the South, and I am really willing to believe a lot of conspiracy theories in regard to race relations.
1: With those documents from COINTELPRO, like, obviously stating that they are targeting black activist groups, and the lawyers for the Black Panther Party, through the charge committee, were eventually able to get access to a lot of these documents. And among the documents provided were several that revealed the FBI's efforts to foment violence against Fred Hampton and the Chicago Panthers, and one dated December 3rd, 1969, just one day before this raid occurred, claiming that the impending raid is part of the COINTELPRO program.
2: Now you know why Jagger Hoover sat on his files like a hen on her eggs. So
1: a huge civil lawsuit occurred. Actually the longest civil trial in federal court history. And two months into the trial, an FBI control agent screws up. On the stand he inadvertently says that the FBI has not Produced All of the Chicago Black Panther files
2: So there were like four more And they were really damning
1: Well, the judge No way in hell he knew what he was getting himself into it Was like, well you've You've got to do it
2: You've got a subpoena Do your job
1: So the government produced cartloads Of, of course, semi-redacted Documents To the court every day For a month
2: Cartloads?
1: Cartloads.
2: That's a hell of a unit of measurement. Okay.
1: Yeah, they produced files containing directives in all sorts of ways to undermine the Black Panther Party, including one that was a directive to destroy the Panther's Breakfast for Children program.
2: Why the hell would you do that? And like the, they uh, gave out breakfast to children. That's what it was. It wasn't a euphemism.
1: No, no. it was one of their. Hum- they had a lot, a lot of
2: humanitarian <laughs> effort. I know, but like, I'm just making sure before I question. Like, it they were giving breakfast to children. And the FBI is like, these shenanigans need to stop.
1: Oh, right. An FBI agent was like, are you sure you want to do this? Someone questioned the Hoover. Oh, and then Hoover says, you state that the bureau under the CIP should not attack programs of community interest, such as the Black Panther Party's Breakfast for Children. You state that this is because many prominent humanitarians, both white and black, are interested in the program, as well as churches, which are actively supporting it. You have obviously missed the point.
2: Mincing gate.
1: They had directives to disrupt the distribution of the Black Panther Party newspaper. Uh, There was evidence that they were targeting Hampton and massive wiretap overhears, including conversations between members and their attorneys.
2: Ooh, that is illegal as
1: fuck. I mean, that's illegal. And then one really damning piece of evidence happened. And that's whenever they discovered that Hampton's personal bodyguard, William O'Neill, had drawn a floor plan of the house for the authorities.
2: And he labeled Fred's bed.
1: And an FBI agent wrote to Hoover after the killing saying, It is felt that this information is of considerable value in consideration of a special payment for information requested in re-Chicago Letter. He was paid $300.
2: Which is like $7 million today. No, it's not. I know. I'm joking. But in
1: 1982, the city of Chicago paid the families of the survivors
2: $1.85 million. They deserved it. They deserved more than that. They deserved memorials and plaques and everything else. It's insane.
1: And on April 23rd, 1976, the church committee released its final staff report on the FBI and CIA's rampant domestic illegalities which included a chapter entitled the FBI's Covert Action Plan to Destroy the Black Panther Party.
2: just That's accurate.
1: And it concluded by highlighting the Hampton Raid as a COINTELPRO operation. So the Court of Appeals also concluded that there was serious evidence to support this, and that the FBI, Hanrahan, and his men, in planning and executing the raid, had participated in a conspiracy designed to subvert and eliminate the Black Panther Party and its members, thereby suppressing a vital, radical black political organization. They further went on to say they participated in cover-up evidence, and to conceal the true character of their pre-raid and raid activities, and to harass the survivors of the raid, and to frustrate any legal redress the survivors might seek.
2: I don't think that this is taught.
1: Oh, no. Not the details, especially.
2: Like, this... This is something that should be known. It really, like, as I think about this and think about the FBI building being called the Hoover building, like, I understand. I get it. He is the guy. He's the guy. But he did such despicable things. He was the most powerful man in America for years. He's the longest serving civil servant in federal history.
1: But the reason these things came out, the reason that we have this information is because people started to question things.
2: Absolutely.
1: And that's a good thing.
2: Questions are great.
1: But that's also where conspiracy theories come from.
2: From questions?
1: From just questions. What do you mean? All you have to do to introduce a conspiracy theory is to ask a question about an official account. And Karen Douglas of the British Journal of Social Psychology says, it's quite a powerful rhetorical tool because it doesn't require any content, just the introduction of doubt about the official story. And so introducing that idea, the idea of questions, that's a good thing. But then whenever you mix it with the idea of paranoia that is so integral in our society, then that's where you get down the line to things like Alex Jones. Oh, that guy again. Well, and so there was an article written in the 1960s and it is kind of famous and cited in every paper on topics of conspiracy theories. It was written in the 60s in response to all of this going on. And it's called The Paranoid Style in American Politics. And it's discussing the ideas of kind of how we do politics, but uses the reference point that people think that there's a vast conspiracy (laughs)
2: against certain ways of life. Right, and that goes back to, like, the Millennialist and FDR.
1: No, for sure. I mean, they were very paranoid that Andy Grace was
2: coming Right. We've got to stop the spread of like this global government. It's just terrible. We've got to make sure that we don't get raptured, folks. Fight the power. But there are a lot of
1: interesting ideas that are put forth, and these have just been extrapolated on for years now. One of those ideas is the projection of the self. And that's the that conspiracy theorists see the enemy as this perfect model of malice, like an amoral superman. Sinister, ubiquitous, powerful, cruel, sensual, luxury-loving. The enemy is an idealized but also unacceptable projection of the self.
2: The thing that's really interesting, because in a lot of the COINTELPRO files and the files for the Harrisburg 7, you see things like, we need to incite paranoia. And I think it's almost like this ubermensch idea that permeated the intelligence agencies. Bizarro Ubermensch? Yes, but they were willing to be the Bizarro Ubermensch. They, had to, they were so sure of their superiority that they believed that just by intimidating and...
1: Agent behind every mailbox? Yeah,
2: just by being there, they could incite these fears and make people paranoid. There's a section in one of the documents that's discussed in Medsgird's book, which she later went on to write a book. I don't know if I said that. Called The Burglary, which is really, really well written. Pause. Go read it really good book but they talk about finding a document that says you know like upon encountering an fbi agent most peace activists will be so overwhelmed (laughs) with the personality of said agent that they will volunteer all of their secrets immediately and take their shirts off exactly it just it's like yeah guys we are the best it's true but it's almost like they know they're the bad guy like they know they're the like accepting it yeah they're like oh yeah we are obviously the Perfect other, and we will make you afraid of us, as you should be. It's so rare to see someone taking on that role.
1: Yeah, wanting to be the one that people are scared of. Mm-hmm. And with that, another interesting idea that is presented is that, that history is willed. That history is a distinctly personal, and it's the result of someone's will, rather than a, quote, comedy of errors and a museum of incompetence.
2: Museum of Incompetence is fantastic.
1: I think that is (laughs) what life should be called. It rejects (laughs) contingency, rejects error, rejects incompetence as any sort of explanation of human affairs. You know, this is all planned out.
2: It's an update on fate. Right. So, and with this idea of sort of self-selective biography or self-selective record keeping, you can come to something... Called a monological belief system. And Psychology Today says, a monological belief system is once an individual has adopted a conspiratorial worldview, new conspiracy theories are assimilated more easily because they support that particular worldview. Thus, believing that September 11, 2001 attacks were committed by United States government makes it more likely That an individual will accept the conspiracy theory that the 2005 London bombings were committed by the British government. This accumulating evidence in support of that idea that conspiracy theories form part of a monological belief system. Once you embrace one theory, you tend to embrace many more.
1: And that's so true. And with it, there is this self-sealing quality that is related to conspiracy theorists. They accumulate evidence, kind of in an aping of a scholarly way. <laughs> but of course, these references are usually kind of dodgy.
2: Vague, broad.
1: And they're very willing to make those curious leaps in imagination that's always made it some critical point in the recital of events. But this evidence is mounted not to start a conversation, but as a defensive act against the outside world, to use it to protect themselves themselves from refutation of a theory, one is developed from conviction about how the world works, instead of an objective study of it. And this also applies with the the social bubble we kind of always talk about the echo chamber. Yeah, you live in your own little social bubble.
2: My bubble this week has been has been burst and pig messed upon. I have been in another world. And it's amazing because it is completely self-sealing and self-supporting and self-sustaining. It is, it doesn't need your input. They do not need anyone else's input, not even a little. But we choose what we see. We're able to filter it so much more now that this is even easier. You know, we don't have to be confronted. We can get all of our, you know, InfoWars is a very comprehensive site. They cover a lot of things. You don't need to go to other news outlets if you choose to adhere to their interpretation.
1: And one interesting thing that is cited in every study about this, and I want to make sure we make the point, is that there's not one particular thing that makes you prone to be a conspiracy theorist. No. Well, there's one thing.
2: If you believe one.
1: If you believe one, you'll probably believe another one. That's it. Sex
2: doesn't matter. Is that a conspiracy theory? <laughs> yeah.
1: Race. Race. <laughs> Ideology, political affiliation.
2: No, it doesn't matter how you think of yourself or how you identify. These theories permeate every in, end and midpoint along the spectrum of every facet of identity.
1: An interesting element that this paper brings up and people have brought about since is that they're not doing it right. They're not doing politics right. They're not trying to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. They're very selfish sealed and Brendan Nahan a professor at Dartmouth stated the reason we should worry about conspiracy theories and misinformation is that they distort the debate that's crucial to democracy they divert attention from the real issue and issues of concern that public officials should be debating I mean this is a disturbing trend that you can see among national political leaders who very readily advance tales of secret schemes and treachery without any sort of evidence. You have what, statements... What, do you
2: have arguments, not facts? And
1: a lot of times people do. You know, what I mentioned earlier, just just ask a question. And just kind of put it out there. And they let you fill in the blanks.
2: Why haven't we seen the birth certificate?
1: Former Representative Cynthia McKinney was a proponent of 9-11 conspiracy theorists. Senator Ted Cruz, our senator... Is the Zodiac killer. That's true. Has said that Agenda 21... It, which is, oh, that's a whole other story, it involves attempts to abolish golf courses and paved roads.
2: Oh no! Those are all Ted Cruz's favorite things.
1: And Zodiac killing.
2: As a three-year-old.
1: But one professor, Dr. Michael Wood, said there are certainly people who would take things further than they honestly believe. But it's also quite possible these ideas about conspiracy theories have taken hold. It would be strange if Politicians or people, or newscasters, or anyone like that, that anybody could be immune to this. And so this brings us back to a person that's definitely not immune to this.
2: No, I think he's a carrier. I think there's a technical term for what he is.
1: (laughs) Is Mr. Alex Jones. Alex Jones is a Texan, descendant of two lines of Texas frontiermen. But in the context of the show I had to read this quote from an article about him. He describes a childhood that will disappoint those searching for the Freudian roots of his crusade.
2: Oh, uh, give, give me a minute. And I'll make some up.
1: It's a conspiracy. But I mean, he, had a, he had a normal childhood, normal guy, read books, played football, had friends, smoked pot, although he eventually stopped smoking pot because he said, quote, it made me paranoid.
2: Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that was like for his friends? Poor, poor friends of Alex Jones.
1: But it's interesting because... I think I really do think he's an intelligent guy.
2: No, I do too. I I actually do. That's why I find it so infuriating.
1: And like he started reading at a like very early age, you know things like decline and fall of the Roman Empire, rise and fall of Third Reich. And he said I started understanding that governments have been staging terror and dealing drugs throughout history. The whole program was there, but his most enduring influence is his 1971 bestseller that he found on his father's bookshelf called none dare call it conspiracy authored by gary allen a spokesman for the john birch society which is a whole other episode yep and this book provided his cornerstone for his
2: new world auto conspiracies so glad that exists so when his worldview was permanently altered i think could be pretty easily tracked back to an event that happened about 100 miles from austin the federal siege of the Branch Davidian cultist compound in Waco, Texas, that ended, let's say badly, ended quite badly. This literally is another episode. This is probably something I want to do a big investigative piece on because it's so interesting. The events in Waco had a galvanizing effect on Jones. Dropping out of Austin Community College, he began hosting a viewer call-in show on Austin's public access television.
1: I accidentally turned to that the other day.
2: How was it? Don't do
1: it. <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> was he on?
1: Oh, no. You know where he's on.
2: Everywhere else. <laughs> but he kind of perfected his uh his his red face style on Austin Public Access.
1: I think it's nicely called bombastic.
2: Oh, is it? Sure. I call it red face. Well, you said
1: his head was about to explode. Yeah, so bombastic. It feels it's perfect right. Though.
2: It feels right. There was some shady shit in Waco, to be fair.
1: Oh yes, another episode.
2: But more evidence came so soon after Wake Up. The tyrannical takeover was upon us, he was sure of it, because of the Oklahoma City bombing, which is something we just don't talk about ever.
1: We really don't. You never hear about it.
2: No, it was so dwarfed by everything that followed. But Timothy McVeigh was the bomber in this incident. And in April of 1995, he attacked and blew up the buildings, killing 168 people.
1: Did the lizard people tell him to do that?
2: <gasps> yeah, they did. No, he was actually, I've seen it written several places, that he was inspired to commit this act in retribution for what happened in Waco. It's all connected. It is all connected. See, if you stare at it long enough. How
1: did I not see this? Faces
2: come out of the rain when you're strange.
1: People are
2: strange. You're going to sing now? Sure. Sure. But Jones just really did not buy this, this good old boy, Timothy McVeigh, fellow patriot. He could not believe that he was responsible for this. He had some cognitive dissonance. An Esquire interviewed Jones in 2013, and he claimed that he had interviewed people who said they'd seen Timothy McVeigh planting explosives with a military escort and cops who mysteriously died after telling him the government did it. Just like the Reichstag. And there was a bombing drill that morning.
1: There are lots of exclamation points in there.
2: (laughs) Yes. The bombing drill is key. Joan cites this as a very big component of how the government covers things up. September 11th, Boston Marathon. I don't know about other stuff, but I'm pretty sure all is connected because I've, yes, I've bought in. Mm, Come back. I'm back. Mm, No, ma'am.
1: (sighs) Ah, That white van outside the house was sending some radio signals into your brain. He knows. If he could get me on his
2: side, I would be so good at spin. So, in
1: 1996, Jones had a radio talk show in Austin called The Final Edition. And it lasted until 1999 when, according to the Austin Chronicle... Which we read. (laughs) He was fired because his views made it difficult to attract sponsors, despite high ratings and winning the Chronicle's Best Austin Talk Radio Host. Reader poll the same person voted 7,000 uh, times. It's conspiracy. It's a
2: conspiracy. I knew
1: it. He was planning all of this. Come back. Then, come oh, back.
2: Sorry. No, 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 no. Sorry.
1: So after this, he said, screw it. He went independent. He started InfoWars from his house. Did I
2: can't imagine starting a radio show from my house. Crazy. It'd be so weird.
1: Created a syndicated radio show. It grew to over 100 stations. He was massively popular. But then, in 2001... He started talking about the 9-11 conspiracies. And this was just too controversial and divisive. And he lost a significant amount of his affiliates.
2: They went, dude, dude, too soon. It was the official ruling. And he really is just one of
1: those Austinites that people talk about. That some people hate. Some people like to ponder over
2: he fascinates me that's where i am yeah he fascinates me and some
1: people love and one person that i guess you can say is an admirer of him is richard linkletter who's an austin director but has done movies like bernie a scanner darkly slackers tons of movies you've heard of that you might have (laughs) seen in these movies he actually cast alec jones as this radical Street preacher
2: Oh I think that casting is spot on So I've I've really been trying to understand conspiracy theories This week like I've really really been trying To get my head around it and the closest I came to like fully understanding And appreciating what What this was What this phenomena of just like everything Is a conspiracy is I think it's a religion
1: Well I guess Letter wasn't that far off
2: yes, that's where I've had the most success in kind of like defining what this means. So it's a belief. And we can't define a belief as purely a rational idea. Rather, it's a set of creeds or proposition to which one assents belief may be materially understood as a configuration of material things, practices, individuals, bodies, and social bodies. From this view, Belief is simply one's understanding of how the world works, based on one's experiences and habits, an embodied epistemology, as it were. Indeed, to privilege religious convictions, as belief over other types of knowledge is implicitly to take part in Solzhenits of discourse. And that comes from a paper written by David Robertson, Silver Bullets and Seed Banks, about this movement. He suggests that we can conceptualize conspiracist prophecy not as a set of aberrant beliefs, but rather as a particular way of knowing, an epistemology mediated through the material world. Jones constructs prophecies of the imminent fall of America, engineered by a shadowy cabal of Satan worshipping socialists from material things, ammunition, purchases, birth certificates, chemtrails, extreme weather... At the same time, his prophecies nurture an industry producing water filters, seed banks, and freeze-dried food for the preppers who would survive.
1: Along with his
2: supplements. <laughs> oh yes, the supplements. For example, on at one point on his show, they announced in a segment that the government had been stockpiling ammo and had recently bought a lot of bulletproof toll booths. And so clearly we're all going to be murdered by toll booth attendants.
1: Or the government is really insistent on saving toll booth workers.
2: They're the only ones that matter.
1: We don't even have toll booth workers in Austin. Mm-mm. Where's he getting this?
2: Flamestream Media. But the ad that ran after this segment said the government's Department of Homeland Security is buying loads of ammo. At the same time, they're restricting civilians' rights to own and purchase firearms. Can you put two and two together? Infidel body armor can stop every round, including hollow points and 308 sniper rounds. What the hell's it made of? It I is. a Yes. It is reasonably priced and fully legal, but for how long? So in this way, he's incorporating a material culture. He is giving you the problem and the solution in one fell swoop, which is what religion does. Thanks. Yes. And then, of course,
1: it's just been shown that talk like that in the media does increase ammunition sales, does increase mm-hmm. does increase sales of stuff like this.
2: Absolutely. And so he's got it on a continuing basis, 24-7. Infidel Body Armor is going to want to sponsor his program. So that's the way that you can see the material aspects of this belief system. You can see the relationship between the products as solutions, and the problems that are posed by these beliefs. Another facet of a belief system or a religion that you see is this kind of interest or prevalence of prophecy, predicting things.
1: Of course, you have to have your ideological statements, Mm -hmm. and a lot of times you have prophecy along with it.
2: Absolutely, and the reason that prophecy is so key is because in a variety of religions, most religions, the basic definition of the word prophet is someone who has encountered the supernatural or the divine. Prophets are often regarded as someone who has a role in society in which they are able to promote change due to their messages and or actions.
1: It's like providing divine guidance.
2: And so, you know, this encounter with the supernatural or the divine when he's staring into the abyss until the abyss stares back and forms a pyramid with an eye on top. Sailboat. It's not a sailboat. Clearly, you're missing the point. But this special power, this supernatural power, is conveyed even though he does not claim it to be supernatural. It's much like David Copperfield. Even though he says it's not a supernatural power and that anyone can do it. He... Just look at the information. Just look at the information. There. Put Just... two and two together. Come on. You know, he says he can see into the future and this allows him to be better informed than most and becomes even more viable or credible every time he gets something right. Now, how does he react when he gets something wrong? Well, that's a problem. Just never mentions it ever again. Right. It's what this author, the Robertson, calls a rolling prophecy because his prophecies are non-date specific, often rather vague and disseminated through the relatively ephemeral medium of daily radio broadcast. His inevitable occasional successes are emphasized and amplified, whereas the majority of his predictions are quietly dropped, as well as increasing his cultural capital and, therefore, his status within the milieu. The cognitive dissonance and potential disconfirmation of bounded, date-specific prophecies is avoided.
1: It's a cold read. A cold read on the government.
2: (laughs) There is sort of a ritualistic aspect to... The way that things are phrased on the site, like there's InfoWars life, and it's all the equipment you need to be ready, and it sells a lifestyle, which is something we're seeing more and more in secular branding.
1: But it's interesting that he is marketing this, and that he's created this. I mean, it's genius.
2: It really is. He's so smart, I hate him. And so it can be symbolic, or it can be... Communicative, And so you have like branded shirts and then you also have like you're ingesting the things that will keep the toxins out of your body. You're literally keeping the conspiracy or the shadowy cabal out of your body by using your fluoride filter, by taking the supplements, by adhering to the lifestyle. And there's also a text. There's a text, a religious text, not only in what Jones offers, Literally, as, as text or speech. Like what's actually written. The content, yeah. Not just the content, but the text is also all around us. We're back to that again. And it's not divinely inspired or uniquely invented, but it's something that's read and brought in from the environment.
1: Yeah, and John Updike was writing about conspiracy theories around JFK. Whole other episode. Whole come other back, episode. come what? back. But, he says... Regarding answers, specifically about the Umbrella Man, the truth about those seconds in Dallas is especially elusive. The search for it seems to demonstrate how perilously empiricism verges on magic.
2: So religion actually does serve a lot of purposes to a lot of people. And you can kind of think of it as just magical thinking using an empiricist model with the conspiracies. It fulfills a lot of psychological needs. It helps us confront and explain fears and anxieties about the unknown. This is religion in general. This is anthropology definitions and discussion. It gives us a sense of control. It eases the stress during moments of life crisis. It offers us a guided transition through stressful periods, through rites of passage. And it lifts the burdens of some decision making from our shoulders.
1: Yeah, and through this, you can see the idea of like greater forces at work obviously in religion we have greater forces at work. And in this we do too. The shadowy cabals, the government, the Bilderberg group, Bill Gates.
2: He's a eugenicist, you know.
1: Etc. And so as one author said, people want to see the world in these terms, good versus evil. They want to believe we're ruled by these forces. But at the center of all this, there's still this hopeful message in conspiracy thinking Just like in religion, the devil's there, but there's hope. There's a message. If we can identify these people, then we can fight them.
2: And I think that you can easily see it's not too much of a jump to look at the psychological needs fulfilled by religion and see that a lot of this community has similar advantages.
1: Right, so he believes that he's speaking truth to power. He's gathering, galvanizing the sheeple into joining his patriot group and opposing this growing tyranny. And there's that classic, come on. And, you know, of course he's saying, I know something you don't. Just like religions do. Mm
2: -hmm. I
1: know the truth.
2: Come closer and I'll tell you the secret.
1: He's manipulating the psychological fears of the vulnerable into complete acceptance of nearly anything he says. He's separating people into groups. There's the liberty-loving patriots, along with those consumerist sheeple, which we're going to either ignore them or try to bring them into the fold. Convert them. Yeah. And of course the sadistic elite that are forever trying to get us under their tyranny.
2: Yeah. So a religion model really does suit me when considering this. And I see that people really are having social needs fulfilled by having access to this community and this information. And social needs that are met by religion include things like reinforcing social norms, creating a social hegemony, common purposes and consistent values within the group, creating a social solidarity, or a uniformity of beliefs that helps bind people together and reinforce a group identity, and gives important clues and steps that allow you to decide what behavior is right and wrong, or kind of creates a moral framework.
1: No, he's definitely doing this. He's creating the in-groups, the people you need to be with. He's creating the right things you should be doing. He's giving you inside information of the evils of the world and what you need to do to fight it.
2: So I was curious like whether or not the government would recognize this as a religion, just because that's the natural question that pops up in my head. Because I'm thinking of writing him a letter, like, now that you can't be news anymore, would you like to be a religion? <laughs> And I will be your prophet. <laughs> Can I be your cult later? You don't get a cult. We've talked about this. <laughs> I want so bad. But Judge Hand once asserted that religion need not be bound by reason and logic. So I think he's qualified thus far. And then in the United States v. Ballad, Justice Douglas wrote in his decision... Freedom of religious belief is basic in society of free men. It embraces the right to maintain theories of life and death and the hereafter, which are rank heresy to the followers of Orthodox faiths. Men may believe what they cannot prove. They may not be put to proof of their religions or their belief. Religious experiences, which are as real as life to some, may be incomprehensible to others. Yet the fact that they may be beyond the kin of mortal does not mean that they should be made suspect before the law. So I'm liking this for him. I'm thinking this is a very good option, very viable option, that he should just be a religion. Because you don't have to prove anything. You can have all the arguments you want and, not, and nary a fact. You just have to say, this is what I believe. I'm religious. I'm religious and this is what I believe. And good news, the IRS only requires two criteria to be recognized as a church legally that particular religious beliefs of the organization are truly and sincerely held and that the practices and rituals associated with the organization are religious so good news you can be tax exempt now you're welcome
1: don't give him any ideas
2: i think it's a great idea i would rather him be a religion than news but there
1: is that there is that idea that the beliefs are truly and sincerely held Absolutely. And without a doubt, he he truly and sincerely holds these beliefs.
2: I've and seen how red his face gets.
1: Because as he said, he has deep context for every claim he makes.
2: Oh, that's impossible. He makes some pretty off-the-wall claims.
1: That's very true. But let's look at some of the things he claims. Which, by the way, we don't eye into any of the insanity that he spews out of his red face. But it's interesting to see...
2: How you get there. How you get there. How you do that.
1: So, he often states things like, people are gaining too much power. We can't allow these groups to come up and go against the government.
2: For example, here's a crazy thing he thinks. He thinks that, like, the government is actively trying to suppress people. Like, they're trying to keep the man down. It sounds so cliche. Like, they're trying to disempower people. That's, that's crazy. That doesn't have context.
1: Except we look at COINTELPRO.
2: Okay, maybe. It has context.
1: Well, they did that. They did try to suppress left-wing groups. They tried to suppress the black activists. And you even get assassinations.
2: Yeah, that's true. The government took out Fred.
1: And you can look at things like like Sandy Hook.
2: How the hell? No, you're not going to convince me that Sandy Hook has any precedence. That's insane. There's nothing.
1: Well, one of the big things he always talks about is that these are or child actors, and they they purely did this to build up feelings and emotions for these poor kids that died.
2: Right, sympathy. Yeah. So they're simulated, real. Oh fuck, that's Operation Northwoods. Uh, we can sink a boatload of refugees, real or simulated. Operation Northwoods. It's on the. It's in the documents.
1: And also in that document, they said that they would sink a ship and then have a crew manifest and publish it everywhere
2: so that people had to look at the names and they were going to release images of the funerals yeah okay okay but no so like (laughs) here's one here's one he has no context for here's one that he just had a slow news day the columbia explosion being used to cover the iraq war
1: except in operation mongoose
2: they were going to trick
1: they said if the john glenn mission failed
2: they'd blame the cubans
1: yeah
2: okay okay give me another one
1: well then he of course he always says that the war on terror and things like 9 11 were events that occurred purely so that the government could gain more power and things like the patriot act and do things that they weren't allowed to do before suspend civil liberties Mm -hmm. and start a war
2: While we don't have a big, shiny American example of this, because we know how to shred paper, or because we're we're pretty decent folks, whatever you want to think there, we have lots of German examples of this happening. We have the Glewitz incident, and we have the Reichstag fire, which some hardcore skeptics still say is a conspiracy theory, so maybe that's just conspiracy theory upon conspiracy theory, but I believe the Nuremberg documents, you know, mostly.
1: Right, he has... Context for the ideas that he believes.
2: I mean, he also claims that the terror alerts were just there to manipulate the public. So, so what? Well, we were color coded. I like color coding.
1: There's that great SNL skit. You remember? It's from years ago, where it's like all the like different colors. It's like fuchsia, I me. Mean. Yeah. But on August 2013, the U.S. State Department issued a global travel alert after announcing it was closing 22 diplomatic missions in the Middle East and North Africa. U.S. officials said they had intercepted electronic communication from Al-Qaeda operatives talking about attacking American interests in the region. Travelers were advised to, quote, take every precaution to be aware of their surroundings and to register their travel plans. And this all came right after the Edward Snowden
2: leak. Interesting. We're going to call that media burglary 5.0.
1: And the Bush-Cheney administration also issued terror alerts at two key points in its first term. In May of 2002, Dan Rather accused administration officials of issuing a bogus terror alert for New York City. A week earlier, his network had reported that Bush had been briefed by the CIA in August 2001 about possible terrorist attacks on U.S. soil involving airplane hijacking by Al-Qaeda. Democrats in Congress were calling for a 9-11 investigation. And the alert in May, as Dan Rather pointed out, effectively changed the subject. Now, another time where...
2: Dan Rather's a conspiracy theorist.
1: Maybe. Now, another time when the Bush-Cheney administration issued a series of terrorist alerts was in the run-up to the 2004 presidential election. And they had noticed that Bush's popularity spiked upward whenever the terrorist threat was raised from yellow to orange.
2: This is... Probably staring at something until it makes a picture, I'm just going to say.
1: Except Tom Ridge, the former Homeland Security Secretary, would disagree with you.
2: I would listen to his opinion and probably value his perspective because he probably knows more than me.
1: He claimed in his book that he was pressured by members of the Bush cabinet to raise the nation's terror alert level just before the 2004 presidential election. He said, quote, There was absolutely no support for that position within our department. None. I wondered, is this about security or politics?
2: In this sick answer, is there the same thing? Uh, okay. Well, listen. Dick Cheney is actually, truly... The Antichrist? No, well, maybe. But he is the poster child for the shadowy cabal. They have a calendar they send out at Christmas. And he's on every month. What's he wearing? Not much. No no. Hunter's orange. <laughs> <laughs> <He> better. <laughs> but like, yes, if anybody were going to do it. If anybody were going to use the terror alerts to manipulate public opinion, it would be Dick Cheney.
1: Obama did it too. Uh, oh. this is across oh. ideologies this is across the political spectrum we have proof from the bush administration because he after after bush was out of office he came out and said this obama's been of office for like a day let's wait and see what comes out
2: oh i will buy his next book but here's the thing I'm going to say that I think there might be some credibility and some some shadiness in a different direction on the Obama alerts because I don't know if he knew exactly what Snowden had. He was not in Russia yet. Mm -hmm.
1: They were actively trying to stop that from happening. I mean, like Obama and Kerry were personally involved in trying to get his ass.
2: Yeah, and I think that... There may have been some really damning stuff that they weren't sure it was going to come out or not. And if it did, there might have been a need for an update.
1: (laughs) You're going conspiracy on me. (laughs) Okay. Let's pull it back. (laughs) Let's pull it back.
2: I've been there for so long. Okay. So about the Boston bombing, Alex Jones says, I've never seen a false flag provocateur staged event by a government come apart faster than it is right now. And he's like alleging that the provocateur is like they they tricked these kids into doing this or use some kind of mind control agent or shadowy cabal, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Well, now there's no proof that that did occur with the Boston bombing. But there's another article that is frequently passed around conspiracy theorist circles by Sunstein. And he worked for the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And he wrote an article in 2008 about conspiracy theories in government. He said, usually these people could be ignored, but where the instances were, say, a group of Islamic fundamentalists or other extremists are spreading conspiracy theories that might promote violence. In those instances, Zunstein says, a possible tactic could be, quote, cognitive infiltration of extremist groups. So government agents... Going in there and going into the chat rooms and this being is agent provocateurs. co
2: COINTELPRO. Right. This is all this is. It's just digital COINTELPRO.
1: And now he was just kind of talking in theory.
2: He was talking out his ass and spitballing because he needed to write a report and it was due Monday.
1: But throughout the last decade or more, it's come out that the FBI has been hosting a number of sting operations to catch terrorists. And now this includes plots against skyscrapers in Dallas, Washington subways, a Chicago nightclub, JFK airport, and many other things. But once you start to look at the details of these terrorist attacks, it's when you might start to get a little concerned. An Oregon college student, Mohammed Osman Mohammed, was thinking of using a car bomb to attack a festive Christmas tree lighting ceremony. Now, he had been talking to these extremists. They were able to provide him with a van loaded with six 55-gallon drums of explosives, blasting caps, a detonator cord, and a gallon of diesel fluid. Now, they would even drive him to the event, and he was given a cell phone to trigger the bomb. Now, it turns out that these extremists that he'd been in contact with were FBI agents.
2: Yeah, it's sounding a lot, a lot, a lot like COINTELPRO.
1: The undercover FBI agents provided these fake explosives, provided a van, even drove him to the event. And whenever he put the number in, it didn't work, of course, because it wasn't a real bomb.
2: <sighs> That's happened like once, though. That's like the only case of it where we're not like making a habit of this.
1: Well, there have been a lot of plots. But the thing is, these plots have been fictional. Uh-huh. But the FBI is more concerned with the intent, that the intent was real.
2: Because they're like, if we could do it, anyone could do it? Like, if we could turn you to thinking this, anybody else could?
1: Right. And when you look at things like, compare this to Pro and the Harrisburg 7, and you can see the obvious ideas of entrapment. They're trying to talk people into something. You know, just to go back to the Harrisburg jury, which was a hung jury, one of them even said, how stupid did those people in Washington think we were? And so one great example of this story is in this this American Life episode from, I think it's 2005, about an Indian-born guy, Hemat Lakami, who was really just duped into this. He was obviously not a very intelligent guy. He even thought that the federal informants were going to sell him full-size submarines. He was egged by an informant into selling him Stinger missiles whenever he had just approached him hoping to sell him mangoes. And it just goes on and on. And it's just like, it should have won a Pulitzer episode of This American Life. Go listen to it. You'll just be shocked. And this does not stop with foreigners, with Muslims. They're going for the, the new left. <laughs>
2: So, yeah, the same exact demographics, too. Super.
1: Yeah, so like in the Occupy movement. I remember that. Yeah, like 2011, getting your way back, Machine. There was a lot of talk of, quote, suspicious males with walkie-talkies around their necks and scarves or towels around their heads that would walk around talking about protesters' unwillingness to act violently. While you could just say, oh, well, that's just people talking, extrapolating. You have events like, one group where there was this 26-year-old guy with a mohawk named Psycho. Oh. And he explained to his anarchist colleagues how you can make plastic ex- explosives with bleach. And he took this group of guys and suggested, hey, maybe we blow up a bridge. That'll really show him.
2: That's a terrible plan, Psycho.
1: Yeah, so he led... Them- <laughs> That's a
2: really yeah. bad plan.
1: <laughs> he led them to a connection that sold them C4 explosives for $450. And they went and through his pushing, through his peer pressure, yeah, they went to blow up a bridge that was going over Cuyahoga Valley's National Park. And just as they were about to blow it up, the FBI swoops in to arrest them. Now, it F- turns out FBI informants suggested the plan. The arms dealer was an FBI agent. And one of the Cleveland arrestees, Connor Stevens, complained to his sister feeling very pressured by this guy, the guy that turned out to be the informant. Mm-hmm. And he was even recorded in 2011 by these guys rejecting property destruction. saying so ran it for the long haul. And those kind of tactics just don't cut it. It's actually harder to be nonviolent than it is to do stuff like that. <laughs> and he was indicted on these charges.
2: Yeah, but like, how is that not entrapment? When you have somebody that's like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Like, It doesn't seem like it would have escalated on its own
1: a great question because you have to look at the legal definition of entrapment.
2: Okay. There's- I love to look at legal definitions. Oh. Dazzle me.
1: I actually looked one up.
2: Yay! Weird. you it's
1: Rubbing off on me. So, a valid entrapment defense has two related elements. The obvious, government inducement of the crime. Mm-hmm. Two, the defendant's lack of predisposition to engage in criminal conduct.
2: But he said he didn't want to do it.
1: Ah, oh, but he was a radical.
2: But just did it. <laughs> disagreeing with someone doesn't mean you're predisposed to blow up a bridge. I'm going to call that a conspiracy theory because I see a big Bring leap, <laughs> big leap there, big oh. leap. So disappointed.
1: But it is crazy because like in Cointelpro, you see, they are attacking people because of ideas. That Absolutely. is why they're targeting them and that they might radicalize that They might cause a problem. That they, they might, might kidnap
2: Henry Kissinger.
1: If Hoover says so.
2: <laughs> I want to kidnap Henry Kissinger.
1: I want to kidnap Henry Kissinger button.
2: <laughs> Can we do both? If I kidnap Henry Kissinger, do I get a button?
1: It's like a Boy Scout badge.
2: <laughs> like a hippy dippy one that's like knitted. It's It's like 1984
1: Orwellian ideas of convicting someone because of their ideology.
2: And the intent was there. You can prosecute. Like if you intercept someone with a gun in their hand, aiming it at someone's head, you, could, you can charge them with attempted murder, right? Because it's like the, the intent is there. And if they're going to a bridge with some explosives saying, we're going to blow up a bridge, the intent is there. That's not the problem. But was it there organically? Would it have matured on its own? Or did it take someone provoking that specific response? Right, and this
1: is something that is not isolated incident. So, 94.2% of cases on a Department of Justice list of terrorism related convictions from 2001 to 2010 involved elements of preemptive prosecution, which they define as preventative, predatory, proactive, pretextual or manufactured prosecution to target those whose beliefs, ideology, or religious affiliation raise security concerns for the government. And they state that they have investigations of people in various stages of radicalizing in all 50
2: states. It says religious beliefs.
1: Oh, it says it. It's a quote.
2: That is so unconstitutional. That violates so many things. It's hard. It's hard to parse this stuff. It's hard to ingest it and to not be overwhelmed by it.
1: Right. The idea of conspiracy theories in general just help us understand everything. It, it
2: gives us a narrative.
1: Right. And we can say, oh, there's a reason for all of this crap, for all of these terror attacks, for all of these mass shootings, for all these dead people and dead children. It didn't happen. It happened because of a grand scheme.
2: And I'm the only one who's smart enough to see it.
1: Conspiracy theories provide this way to restore our feelings of control and order. But as we've shown, these these are not new ideas. A lot of times people like to say, oh, the internet. The internet is the reason we're always doing this. But this has been around for centuries, as we've talked about. I mean, you can even look at some of the more crazy ones, such as American scientists controlling the weather. Conspiracy theory about that in 1958. We've talked about Roosevelt, all the conspiracies about him. That England and Canada were conspiring to overthrow portions of the United States. That's from 1890. Even one that has a bill that was written to protect sheep was passed with the intention of killing off all domestic dogs. From 1917.
2: Wake up, sheeple!
1: That's where the term comes from.
2: Just kidding. No, it doesn't. I do think that the internet contributes because, as you know, if you were gonna believe one you might believe more and while you might get on board with the sheep are here to replace your dogs conspiracy how many more are you gonna have access to like how often are those coming around in the sheep are here to replace dogs days right the, you're not in, the getting 75 there 75 every two seconds on twitter
1: right but there are numerous studies showing that this has not been increased it's just more visible and your ability to espouse it is
2: there. Well, I don't think they have hard data. I don't think they have hard data proving that those people all only had one conspiracy theory or believed every conspiracy theory. Like, I think that you can't quantify it because you don't know how many different theories people believe. And I think that probably now I'm going to make a leap. It's what I've been doing. You're conspiring. I'm not. I think that now it is easier to get access to all of them. You can get list and list and list and list of conspiracy theories just on YouTube. Just in the five minutes that you are waiting for the coffee to brew in the morning. There have to be. They have to be more prevalent. And they're putting fluoride in the water and that's why all the frogs are gay.
1: We'll just agree to disagree.
2: The frogs are gay. Alex Jones told me. It's been a really long week. But really, if you
1: look through all these conspiracy theories... There are philosophical components, there are psychological components, there are sociological components, but there are really big political components. Jovan Biford wrote that they are marked by a distinct thematic configuration, narrative structure, and explanatory logic, as well as by the stubborn presence of a number of common motifs and tropes. And he goes on to talk about Conspiracy's interpretation of the 2008 financial crisis, looks a lot like the arguments and tropes which were used to interpret the Great Depression of the 30s. The 9-11 truther movement draws extensively on the interpretive framework established in the 40s by the opponents of FDR accusing him of allowing Pearl Harbor to happen. He really can see that. So conspiracy theories help fill that gap between what we think should happen and what does happen. It treats correlation as causation and jumps across an open evidentiary space to make things that aren't demonstrably connected look as if they were. You know, Jones and other theorists are very famous for being able to quote philosophers and scholars, and many of them are very well read. And they're taking all of that information and they're processing it just through that lens One writer said, the problem, however, is certainly not in the information, which is agnostic. It's more likely a result of the filters we construct and those that are constructed for us.
2: And with that in mind, I think it's important to draw a distinction between knowing and doing. And we're not really well equipped to do this because according to some theorists, like Lazarsfeld and Merton who wrote a paper in 1948 on narcotizing dysfunction. Outpourings of the media presumably enabled the 20th century Americans to keep abreast of the world. Yet, it is suggested that this vast supply of communications may elicit only a superficial concern with the problems of society. This superficiality often cloaks mass empathy. Exposure to this flood of information... <laughs> may serve to narcotize rather than energize the average reader or listener. As an increasing need of time is devoted to reading and listening, a decreasing share is available for organized action. The individual reads accounts of issues and problems and may even discuss alternative lines of action. But... This rather intellectualized, rather remote connection with organized social action is not activated. The interested and the informed citizen can congratulate himself on his lofty state of interest and information and neglect to see that he has abstained from decision and action.
1: You can see that more than just conspiracy theories. Oh, yes, absolutely. Any political.
2: Slacktivism. They're talking about
1: slacktivism. You're better at naming things back then. But with that, with just having this information and gathering this information, like we said, they're sealing themselves off. They're developing this bubble that they have. And there's a lot of confirmation bias there. But with that, you get a backfire effect. To where To If you correct people with data and information, it will not convince them that they're mistaken. If people try to correct a false belief, they can simply entrench the belief. The thought some people have is, why would someone deny it if it wasn't true? In other words, the denial is proof of the truth of the theory. And that's by Sunstein, um, one of our overlords.
2: I mean, that, I think that's one thing that really troubled me as I was like wading through the morass this week is you would start reading an article or watching a video or anything like that. And they'd make a point about free speech. And you're like, yes, I agree. And then they'd be like, because my advertising's been taken away taken away, or whatever. And clearly that's part of the conspiracy. I'm like, no, 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 no. They're not telling you, you can't say it. They're saying they're not going to pay you for it. It's different. It's like a lack of distinction, generalizations.
1: It all ties in.
2: Absolutely. And it's just so frustrating to know that there's no discussion to be had. That's just the overwhelming feeling I would get. And I found that speed and the assuredness, the self-assuredness of the the information just oppressive and overwhelming it's like i want to talk to you about this i want to understand where you're coming from but how can i when it's so combative
1: right they're not gathering that information to discuss it or like to have a two-way discussion i should say
2: it's a blunt instrument
1: it's also defense
2: Mm, yes yes i think that's fair But an
1: interesting thing about conspiracy theories is we've talked about it. They exist. Conspiracies do exist. People have done false flag operations in the past. People have...
2: Assassinated leaders.
1: And created disinformation campaigns and done terrible things to start wars. These things have happened, but it doesn't mean they're all going to happen. It doesn't mean everything is linked together. And the idea of a conspiracy theory has become such a broad label. I and mean, when you say that, you might think of, of aliens. Tinfoil
2: hats. Tinfoil
1: hats and the Illuminati. and just really out there ideas. And it automatically, you say, oh, nah, you're crazy.
2: Yeah, like when I came to you the other day, and I was like, hey, like five Russian officials are dead. Let's talk about it. And you were like, ah, 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 ah. bring it back in.
1: <laughs> bring it back in. Woo, Nelly.
2: Like, no, but really, I have news articles. And you're like, stop
1: it. But just as conspiracy theories start frequently with just questioning, that's okay.
2: Questioning is demanded of you. Questioning is your responsibility. I don't think it's just okay. I think you must, especially to be an engaged member in a democratic society. Being a critical thinker.
1: No, and that's the important point is that talk about the paranoid style of American politics is that focusing on this, focusing on all these shadowy cabals... Distracts from the real problems that we should be discussing.
2: Which is exactly what they're trying to avoid by proffering these things. Like, don't fall for the distractions. Come over here. And listen to my distraction. I'm shiny and pretty and I sing songs about balls. My favorite conspiracy theory is that Alex Jones is a CIA disinformation agent.
1: Maybe he
0: is.
2: I love that so much because there's a really loud man over here screaming please don't look behind the curtain that cracks me up. And everything that he says about the government, like they're just filling you up with all these chemicals to make you compliant. He's literally filling people up with chemicals. (laughs) He's like, they're just trying to get to people with powerful rhetoric and take advantage of vulnerable people and manipulate their thought processes. I'm like, okay, not going to point any fingers, but, but I kind of love that. I love that when you build a culture out of conspiracy theories, it, you know, still has the hallmarks of a society and it still has its own like culture that has to be addressed because it's really what these theories are there to do. Right. Cause
1: you're developing your own little subculture.
2: So now he's the most powerful man in this little subculture. So we really should be skeptical of him if we're paying attention.
1: That's right. Sheeple. That's right. Sheeple.
2: But I do think it's important to question and maybe that is how conspiracy theories get started. But sometimes people have some valid concerns. I think the problem is when we question and before we have evidence, we tell people an imagined narrative that makes grand leaps in logic and present it as fact.
1: And we don't listen to the people involved. We don't listen to the answers to the questions.
2: We get stuck in the phase of arguments and never make our way. To facts. With that being said, I think it's important to evaluate people who adhere to conspiracy theories through a lens that incorporates their experience and that validates questions that they've been forced to ask.
1: And look at the context.
2: Sam Smith wrote in the Progressive Review The conspiracy theories may be the mythic translation of stories that are not allowed to be told. He observes that some people are not paranoid, merely perceptive. He says what is needed is a more poetical reading of these claims because the poet understands that a myth is not a lie, but the soul's version of the truth.
1: And Maybe that's not just a story.
2: Maybe it's not.
0: Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts Society-13.com I like to listen.